Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, July 16th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Christine Rosen is out today with us in her stead. Uh, Washington Commentary columnist, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, Matthew Cottonetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Also, as ever, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, hey, guess what, guys? Communism, bad. Communism is fu- bad. We finally have a kind of consensus in the United States once again that communism is bad. It took about four days because uh, after the protests arose in Cuba on Monday, the United States criticized the, quote, authoritarian, unquote, regime in Cuba. Uh, that was both, uh, that, and you know, that was a deliberate choice by the administration because everybody used the word authoritarian from Joe Biden to his spokesman. So there was some kind of pre-rehearsed decision to characterize it that way. Um, And then I guess after three days and people saying, you know, maybe we don't want to be completely obliterated in Florida for the next generation, um, Biden yesterday came out. And Noah, uh, what did he he actually say uh, in his third or fourth go-round at the Cuba issue? He said a couple of things, and they're good. I mean, they're unequivocally good. We should be praising these statements as agonizing as the interval between this uh, protest erupted and, and Joe Biden actually saying the consensus view around communism was, you know, it's it's nice to see it because nobody's, the people who need to hear it are not listening to us. But what he said was the following, quote, communism is a failed system, a universally failed system. And I don't see socialism as a very useful substitute, but that's another story. It wasn't another story. Um, he went on to say that we're considering whether to have a tech, whether we have the technological ability to reinstate access to communications platforms like the internet. Good for him. God bless him. And the people who really need to hear this message are in his coalition. So it's not a risk-free proposition to say something like this, as as horrible as that sentence is to, to say. It's the truth. There are communists in his coalition, and he risks alienating I mean, we know that because here's what's interesting. Uh, Christine talked about this yesterday. We said, hey, where's the squad? Why isn't the squad talked? Where are the leftists? The leftists seem silent. And then Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez both issued statements, which uh, which drew a, a, a complete parallel between the uh, terrible things that the regime, you know, the problem of a suppression of freedom uh, on the ground in Cuba and the terrible consequences of the American embargo. Um, uh, and I think uh, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics counted that in 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 Ocasio Cortez's statement there were 44 words condemning uh, Cuba and 59 words condemning the United States. So um, Matt, what do you what do you make of that? Well, and the, uh, the Sanders and uh, Ocasio Cortez statements were moderate in comparison to the statements put up by Black Lives Matter and uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, which are uh, totally just uh, blaming uh, the United States and, and uh, saying, um, basically defending in many ways, uh, the Cuban regime. <clears throat> so there's gradations. Um, I think when I look at the administration's uh, response over the past week, it started off basically as uh, Obama redux. We were back in the Obama administration. It was, uh, the, I was just struck by the way in which Saki sounded almost exactly like uh, her old self when she was the State Department spokeswoman. Um, and it, the Obama emphasis on, you know, what's, it doesn't really matter what the nature of a regime is as long as they give their um, 
subjects uh, dignity, you know, and provide them access to fresh water, you know, potables and, and stuff like that. Now, um, by the end of the week, I think it's much more of a Biden uh, foreign policy. Now, at least in at least in the rhetoric, he's he's they're saying that the system is bad. This is uh, rightfully so. Um, and he's now looking into steps to maybe assisting the protesters. He's not where I'd like to uh, like him to be, obviously, uh, nor is he where the mayor of Miami uh, wants yes. him to be, which he, I like this guy. You know, he has a yeah. future uh, yeah. c- calling yeah, contemplating yeah, yeah. airstrikes, you know, yeah. <laughs> air, air, airstrikes and a ground invasion. I think, yeah. I think yeah. he, he I mean, mentioned putting boots on the ground. Yeah. He's ready. You know, I, I, I like the cut of his jib. Um <laughs> But there are a lot of, you know, it's fascinating to watch the Biden administration here because he's also clearly concerned about the potential immigration fallout, right? I mean, not only not only from Cuba, uh, which has used the immigration weapon in the past, uh, but now he also has this uh, uh, situation in Haiti, and uh, there immigration, illegal immigration from Haiti had been rising before the the assassination and the coup attempt. So, um, I, I think so far he's done a you know, a passable job. Uh, he's distinguishing himself from his Democratic predecessor, which for me is the most important thing. Um, uh, but he could always do more. Abe, I was struck by 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 one thing about uh, what I would sort of think of as a kind of liberal gaslighting, but I don't think it's really aimed at, at, at us exactly. It's sort of like a self-gaslighting. Uh, I was reminded of um, 2012 and uh, the attack... Uh, in Benghazi and Obama's bizarre instruculent refusal to say that this was an attack on the United States by Islamic terrorism. I mean, this went on for days. It was very strange, but it seemed, yeah, go ahead. Well, in this sense, then I have to somewhat disagree with Matt in that even Biden's uh, coming around to condemning uh, to to naming communism as 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 the problem um, is still actually very much like the previous Democratic president because Obama did after first refusing to say uh, that Benghazi was terrorism come around and say it was terrorism um, so so starting in the worst possible place then coming around to saying something slightly more reasonable is still not unlike Obama. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not that heartening. Yeah. You could even make the case that it's a little bit worse because if Obama's objective in 2012 was to maintain the narrative that the war on terror was essentially over and that Al Qaeda was on the run and this, you know, there, we can deescalate the the global war on terror. Um, that was a political, con- a political consideration uh, taking into account the whole of the United States, the whole of the electorate, whereas Biden's consideration was just to take in account the squad, basically, and loud voices on Twitter. Um, okay, which but, but is even more parochial. I mean, the question is what what we might take away from this about the condition of the United States. Not to be too too um, too grandiose, but one of the reasons that what Obama did in September of 2012 seemed so strange was that uh, to me and to other people who I would say were not on the far, on the far right of, of the Republican coalition, that Obama saying terrorists struck us in, in Libya, we will not rest until we get them 
you know, America is the greatest and, you know, we will not allow this to happen to our diplomats and, uh, you know, we will crush them and just as we will not let this happen. It was like a gimme. Who could object to such a thing? Now, I understand that it interrupted the, you know, Al-Qaeda's death, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bin Laden, Bin Laden is, is dead, dead and General and Motors is alive line. Right. But having said that, uh, I never understood. I just didn't understand what, why it was they didn't see this or, 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 um, or jump on it. And similarly, uh, it's curious to me that a gimme, which is like there's an uprising 90 miles off our shore, a communist regime, you know, where they haven't had a new car since 1961. And, and, and you can say, look at these people fighting for their freedom. Isn't this great? We support them. And they don't want to say it initially. Their impulse is not to say it. What do they know about their own coalition and maybe about the United States that we are now in such a place that we can't even take an easy uh, lap for democracy? Well, they, uh, again, is that too grandiose? I, mean, I, I think or, it says so, a lot. I think it says more about the Biden administration than it does America. And I mean, I, look. It, it, when a presidential administration encounters a crisis, it takes time to figure out what's going on. These things, I mean, there was a buildup. And if you've been watching, actually, whatever, you know, the scattered news we get from uh, Cuba over the last couple of years, there have been um, kind of a thaw. Uh, you know, there have been more artists. Uh, there was an artist's movement there uh, in recently. And it, it, whatever the case, they clearly were taken by surprise, by, the, by these widespread marches, protests, rights. So any administration, when they encounter this, they're going to. It's going to take them time to figure out what their message is. Their first instinct, right, was to simply to revert to the Obama detente policy that he struck with Cuba at the end of his administration, and to say, well, we, you know, the people are marching for their rights, but we need to make make sure that the Cuban government fulfills its obligation. Well, you know, less than a week later, they're now on to saying this regime is corrupt and bad. And I actually think that's more responsive to positive elements within America. Yeah, exactly. They misread is, the room. Right. Right. Which is, oh, and they, now you know, they understand that people want people in America actually like are, are on the side of, of the uh, of the freedom of the freedom fighters, so to speak, uh, there in Cuba. But uh, I don't know, just going back to slightly. I mean, the, the for me, the analogy isn't to Benghazi, uh, which, which was a terrorist attack on us. And um, uh, I mean, obviously spoke to Obama's weird ideology. The analogy is to the to the, uh, the green mo- movement in Iran, and, which also happened in the first summer of a of a of a democratic administration. And I think I, I, I have to say, you know, maybe I'm just I'm growing soft in my old age or my middle age now. But uh, Biden's response to this has been much better. Than Obama's response to to the Green Revolution in Iran. I, I, I mean, there's, there's no comment. It's clear that Obama just, you know, Obama just did not want to deal with. Obama's instinct was always that you know what the regimes are there because of America's fault, right? And so forget about the people who live under these regimes. It's really our fault that the regime exists. So I'm not going to get involved because at the end of the day, we're the reason that the mullahs are in Iran and the communists are in Cuba. And so if we get involved, we're just going to make things worse. I think in comparison, Biden, through his own old Democrat instincts and liberal, old liberal internationalist muscles, 
he was kind of said, well, they want freedom. They should have it. And you know what? Um, maybe I'm judging off a low bar, but it's good enough for me. No, I think uh, there are no I- geopolitical stakes here. Hmm. Almost none. Yeah. Right. There, were, there were a lot of geopolitical stakes involved in Iran, Trump, Donald Trump's response to Hong Kong, even uh, Obama's response to the uprisings in um, in Venezuela in 2014-2015. This this one's a gimme. There's you, you you could we could really be intervening here in a much more material way, not boots on the ground, not ex- executing airstrikes, but taking ownership materially of these protests with very little downside in my in my limited view of, of okay well there is a downside there there is a there is a potential downside this is a deeper and more tragic reference to history but um uh there were real consequences uh in 1956 and 1968 uh behind the iron curtain when there were uh uprisings and revolts and real hopes that the united states would somehow intervene and help the hungarians particularly in 1956 and then the tanks rolled in and and there was you know there were mass arrests and there was a lot of killing and all of that and american diplomats who lived through that got nervous about uh being kind of cavalier about saying things that might be heard as the cavalry is coming uh we're we're going to come to help you um and a lot of that is muscle memory. Now we're we're you know we're sixty years away from that, sixty five years away from that, and the world has changed entirely. Um, but if you want to know the origins of the, you know, we better be a little cautious about these uh, populist uprisings in countries that have governments that are willing to be violent, because there could be a lot of bloodshed, and we could somehow inadvertently lead to more people getting killed than we ever, you know, meant because of course we never will put boots on the ground. Yeah, I understand uh, that is the logic okay. and that, that logic. No, but that's there. no, but that's all I'm all I'm saying is that there is a sort of, you know, before we just jump in, there is a there is an American history of of not appreciating our own strength. Like that that a little word from the United States uh can convince people that we are, you know, that that we're gonna we're gonna play a big role in their, you know, in their liberation, and then terrible things happen uh, that we 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 can't intervene for. That's that's all I'm that's all I'm saying. I get I'm not, it. That's the logic yeah. that that every single time this happens. I was just I just recently wrote a piece on this about Venezuela, about Iran 2009, yeah. about Iran 2019, about Hong Kong 20, 2019, and that's the same logic. Everybody says. Uh, you know, the smart, sophisticated set. Look, if the United States gets too involved in this, we're going to be responsible for whatever happens next. No, we aren't. Not only that. No, we aren't. <clears throat> there's, there's a worse argument um, that uh, obtained a lot during, during the Iranian um, situation, which is that if we are seen to be on the side of the protesters, you see, that, um, that will sort of effectively, conceptually Americanize their, their, um, their fight and therefore the regime will crack down more on we we are we will be harming them just by virtue of our lending our rhetorical support just by just by being seen to be on their side right which which of course is very convenient when you don't want to actually stick That's your right. neck out you could say well you know we can't do this because we're going to we are going to somehow delegitimize the uh the innate 
natural uh I'm, I'm trying to think of the word you know sort of like that that, that a spontaneous uprising within the country and that it wasn't you know generated by the cia or something like that inorganic yeah yeah um that said i mean the thing of course that it, when no when you're right to say that there's no geopolitical cost. I mean, in Iran in 2009, what we know now and what we sort of knew then is that Obama had ambitions, had large geostrategic ambitions in relation to the United States and Iran that this uprising interfered with. And he didn't want it because he had a grand design in his head. There is no grand design with Cuba, right? That's why the cost is so low and that and that we can do a little bit here and there could make a very big difference. Also, we don't know about how stable this regime. I mean, let's say we assume the regime is stable because no one's going to overtake. But the Castros are gone. There's this kind of no nothing functionary who is now, or you know, no name functionary who is now the dictator of Cuba. We don't know anything about him. We we often think under these circumstances that you know the guy who came in as weak and it turns out he's not, you know, like when Bashar al-Assad took over from his father, it's like, oh, he's an optometrist. He'll be, blah, blah, blah. and it turned out that he was more savage uh, than his father was. And, and no one would say that uh, Nicolas Maduro's regime now is particularly vulnerable. Right. But it no, was that, in 2014. I, I think, though, we right. should talk about Venezuela because I think it's a cautionary example here. I mean, we know personally in some cases of the individuals who were trying, who were involved in, in the attempt to, push Maduro out and install the legitimately elected president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. And that failed. Uh, and that failed for a combination of reasons um, uh, from um, presidential inattention and actually distrust of Guaido because uh, according to John Bolton's memoir, uh, Trump didn't like uh, the fact that Guaido's wife didn't wear her wedding ring. And this to Trump apparently suggested Guaido was weak and therefore not um uh, worth his support. And that kind of led to Trump's, you know, forgetting uh, about uh, the statements he had made uh, in support of democracy in Venezuela. Uh, there are other reasons the Russians kind of took the carpet out <laughs> from under our feet, right? At the very moment when we could have had regime change in Venezuela. But one, uh, you know, one other um, aspect of that fight over Venezuela was the involvement of the Cuban military and intelligence services, and so, which, and that has always been in the back of my head to suggest that the regime is, in Cuba is actually more resilient um, than we give it credit for. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that that is an argument for more action on the part of the Biden administration to couple its, you know, pretty pretty good rhetoric uh, so far. But I mean, again, the interesting thing about Venezuela is. We we didn't you know it, Guaido was not uh, installed in Maduro's place. Uh, I don't think the United States did itself discredit in what it did in relation to Venezuela. It would have been worse had we just said, "Look, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing." No, no, no. To be that done. is what happened, though. That is what happened, though. In 2014, what? Barack Obama. Yeah. No, I'm talking about 20, these, I'm talking about 2019. Yeah. And did nothing. Yeah. 2014, right? When this, when this, no, you're began. talking about Obama, but we're talking yeah. about Gua- we're, yeah, we're talking huh. about. But the- that's, but this was, it was already too <laughs> yeah. late. It was too late in 2015. The first thing the United States did in response to the Venezuelan uprisings was to le- allow Congress to take the lead. Congress took the lead. Congress passed something yeah. in December of 2014, and then in March of 2015, Barack Obama impo- imposed sanctions on the Venezuelan regime. Long after the iron was already cool, the, but, the, but the, the time yeah, to move but, is when the moment is upon you. Right, but in this case, 
<clears throat> there was this, uh, you know, potential moment at which uh, Maduro could have, you know, yeah, basically yeah. there were rival governments. There were rival governments. The plane was he, on the tarmac, uh, as Pompeo yeah. put it. You know, yeah. I mean, and and it, yeah, and very specifically, I mean, we we had to choose which government we were going to recognize or support, and we chose the right one. And you don't know what the long-term, this is something I said earlier this week, you don't know what the long-term benefits of American support might be. In other words, in this case, Cuba might not, you know, the uprising here might not, and largely, you know, won't succeed, whatever, the, whatever, however you want to delineate success. You know, we are unlikely to see the government fall and a new government take its place that, you know, that, rep, you know, a democracy represented. But we don't know what five years or seven years or eight years from now can happen and what kinds of connections and uh, and, and what kind of optimism. Look, it, relating to Cuba, you know, there are a million – there are like millions of Cubans or half Cubans or something living in the United States who are, you know, who are connected to Cuba. But, of course, it's been 60 years since well, – it's been 40 years since the Mariel boat lift. It's been six, 60 years since the revolution. And, you know, if they if they have their consciousnesses raised again, and there are these increasing points of contact between the outside world and Cuba, who knows what can be brought in? Who knows what kinds of, you know, documents, books brought in, brought in in Spanish, carried in by tourists and stuff like that to help people come up with things and come up with policies, you know, like uh, some version of, of you know, what, what Vladimir Bukovsky and others did in the 1970s to push, use the Soviet regime's own code of law against it. Things that Cubans may not have any idea about and that they can be influenced by. And if we, if they, if they have a more optimistic sense of their own futures and the possibilities that dissidents can cause... You know, 1980, you know, solidarity uh, was crushed. And then nine years later, the Berlin Wall fell. You know, I mean, it's a history doesn't follow a straight line. And, and you don't know what, for example, let's take Tiananmen Square, like as, as an example. So Tiananmen Square happened. We didn't know what to do. We behaved somewhat cravenly, let's say. Was that good? I mean, you know, was that so so china then grew economically in this fantastic way but the but the model for uh china's authoritarianism was hardened in a way that maybe had we been more circumspect about china as a result of tiananmen square and said more and done more to support the idea that the chinese people are, have a right to be free just like everybody else on the planet um, who knows what the political consequences would it be in the in the course of that incredible tumult and ferment of the of the of the of the years before 2015 when Xi basically decided to re-totalitarianize China? You know, I'm just picking up off of that. Uh, this is a case in Cuba where the fact that we have no economic entanglements does actually free our hands quite a bit <laughs> because there's yeah. no business lobby like there is uh, vis-a-vis China always saying, oh, you can't do that. You're going to alienate our, our uh, market opportunities and such. It's because, the, because of the embargo, we are firmly on the side of democracy in Cuba and we, have, we, can, we can do uh, quite a bit, leading to my second point, which is the X factor here is social media. I mean, it's fascinating to read all the accounts. The regime made a mistake 
from its point of view, from the grand strategy of despotism. It made a mistake a couple years ago to allow social media to the Cuban people, because as we as we've seen, beginning with the Arab Spring in tw- uh, a decade ago, once populations have access to social media, the clock begins ticking for authoritarianism. There's no question about it. And so what is the first thing that the Cuban government does? Shuts down the Internet. You can't talk. And because talking equals networking equals protest equals threat. Right. So this is this is why I think it's not just enough for Biden to say you have to. Well, we're going to look into it. You know, (laughs) he has to do it. (laughs) This is the new Samus dot is access to social media. Right. I mean, what's interesting from what, again, we don't really know what's going on there, but uh, Diaz, the president, essentially called for the um, the activation of the neighborhood block committee system in Cuba. The country, you know, in some kind of like totalitarian nightmare uh, is organized by block, uh, you know, obviously not in, you know, very rural areas, not that there are that many like entirely rural areas, but but there are block committees on every block. There's like a there's like a, a you know a, a commissar for every block, and 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 a, you know communist party members on every block who sort of function as the block committee. And Diaz said, everybody go out in the streets and shut these people down. And it appears that it didn't happen. I mean that, that that's the that's where you also say it's not just that social media, of course, creates a whole new sense of connection and community or can where you are you get a sense that there are people 35 blocks away from you who have the same ideas that you do and and if they didn't come out you know that suggests or presents an opportunity a, a larger political opportunity than we might have thought otherwise because he and we said we don't really know we don't do really it, know what's going on we don't know what's going on in cuba <clears throat> because as you said the communications networks are shut down but the government is showing signs of being becoming a little unstuck. Um, They were making some concessions yesterday, among them uh, that they were uh, lifting restrictions and and tariffs and sanctions on the importation of food and medicine, individual travelers who go to the country who have food and medicine. They're not going to be subject to the kind of uh, tariffs that they normally would be to bring that sort of stuff into the country, which, by the way, completely undermines the the Rose Twitter Brigade's contention that the U.S. sanctions somehow affect the importation of food and medicine into the country they don't and never have. And yet, you know, the, the Pan-American, Pan-American, you know, view from countries that have semi-socialist governments like Mexico are saying, you know, the only way for us to, to approach this crisis is to ease sanctions. Now is the time to reward the regime uh, for its behavior, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but their behavior, the behavior in, in Havana does suggest that this is having an effect and, and is a significant effect on the stability of the regime. And it would be a good time to take advantage of that. It's, it's, I have to say, though, you know, it's ironic, um, Matt's point about social media in Cuba, in Cuba because uh, if you look at the effect of social media in the U.S. in regard to this, um, it seems to have had the sort of opposite effect in that I think it's largely responsible for why there was a delay in the president condemning communism for what it is. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's such a big mouthpiece for Super uh, democratic superstars who are in fact uh, members of the uh, uh, Democratic Socialist Party, like AOC. Um, uh, so social media, you know, sort of works to kind of um, amplify support for uh, bad ideas and and authoritarianism and 
socialism here. It is uniquely disruptive. And I think social media has disrupted the American regime the same way that it's disrupting every other regime. I mean, whether it's in the form of Donald Trump or whether it's in the form of uh, BLM and the iconoclasm and the revolutionary impulse that we've encountered in the last year, all driven, as you say, through social media. Yeah, so this technology is value neutral and and it can be used to bring down tyrannical governments, and it can also be used to uh, threaten a constitutional democracies such as our own. Okay. It's, I don't think that's the only way to look at this. I mean, one way of looking at this is that it prov- it presents this uh, classic commentary magazine podcast terminology use, Plato's cave effect, where you have the fear of the shadows that are created by social media uh, that outweigh the actual hard political realities in the United States, which are like, are we really giving up Florida? Are we Democrats giving up the third, the fourth, the third or the fourth largest state in the, in the United States in perpetuity now, because we're not going to say the right things about this because we're afraid that someone is going to tweet hostily at us like millions of voters versus a tweet that's that's how powerful social media's effect can be and you it takes like three days for somebody to say wait are you crazy you're seeding the sunshine state to the republicans for that we take that off the table can you really blame all of social media for that because the obama administration had that same assumption but it was predicated on poll data no, they, but, were, no, they, but we they have... were assuming that everybody had in 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 Cuba or in Florida and the Cuban expat community, particularly young people, had moved on from the issue and just didn't yeah, care about that, it anymore. Okay, they had, but the Obama administration had uh, innocence on their side. They didn't have the results of 2016, 2018, and 2020 as as the new political reality. Florida, uh, Obama won Florida twice, so he thought, okay, well, this is all moving on. Cuba is no longer a third rail issue for Democrats, and we can liberalize and all of that. And then Trump wins in South Florida, and you know, and uh, DeSantis wins in 2018, and then Florida is basically put away in 2020. And those those uh, congressional districts where people were screaming and yelling about Democratic liberalism killing them. In you know, in South Florida, those are all the political realities that Biden and the Democrats face now, and and so at least I think Obama had some information on his side to support the idea that he had a freer hand to do what he wanted to do in Cuba. But Democrats have no excuse again if they want to say, okay, it's lost, and they they seem to be very willing. Oddly, politically, not to sort of shift the whole conversation here, but they seem to be oddly willing to say, all right, Florida's gone and Ohio's gone. Really? You want to say Florida and Ohio are gone? I mean, you just you won them twice re- relatively recently. Like, why are you seeding these states because of your ideological base, like driving you further to the, you know, further to the left than you should be going? Like, comport with political reality you know i mean there's still like a very left-wing senator in ohio i i don't understand this is what i'm saying like there's a this is the weird effect of social media that that on the one hand you have tens of billions of voters and on the other hand you have tweets 
and and in in a, for a lot of people, the tweets outweigh the tens of millions of voters uh, who you need to get back. And with that, uh, let me talk to you about our first advertiser today, Made In. Uh, if you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. Look, if quality and craftsmanship is important to you, you should check out Maiden, the cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, knives, and wine glasses. Maiden produces professional quality cookware and knives for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Maiden products are made to last and they offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven. And their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and stay sharp. They have 32,000 five-star reviews, and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in. Better cookware for better meals. And right now, Made in is offering our listeners 15% off their first order with promo code COMMENTARY. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made in products. Go to Made in Cookware. That's M-A-D-E-I-N-C-O-O-K-W-A-R-E. Dot com slash commentary and use promo code commentary for 15% off your first order. That's maidencookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code commentary. Um, <clears throat> Los Angeles County, the largest county in the United States, announces that uh, even the vaccinated now must mask indoors. Matt, uh, on our video here, you are shaking your head. Am, you are shaking and shaking and shaking. I am pulling out my Gadsden flag, John. I am going <laughs> to march in the streets. Now, I was in California last week, uh, but I was not in Good LA. timing. Excellent I timing. Left. Uh, I was not in LA County, uh, except for a brief layover in LAX. Nonetheless, when I heard this news yesterday, I began um, becoming apoplectic. Today, I looked up the um, the deaths in Los Angeles County from COVID yesterday. Los Angeles County has 10 million people. Nine died of COVID yesterday. And yet they are in the mandating effective Saturday that everyone wear a mask indoors regardless of uh, vaccination status. This is not only going to not work as a policy, but it is such an affront I think to all of the people who got vaccinated, uh, and the and, and the knowledge, you know, and the understanding that one it immunizes you from the virus, <laughs> you know, and two, um, that's the way to get out of having to wear a mask. Uh, finally, last night uh, I happened, uh, and I, I rarely watch cable news, but for whatever reason, uh, the television happened to be uh, turned on to CNN, where I watched Dr. Leanna Wen. Tell Anderson Cooper that well, we can't. We we lifted all the restrictions way too soon. She says, and I. This is a pretty direct quote. People thought that they could do whatever they want once they got vaccinated, that there would no longer be any controls. Well, they were wrong, and I'm. I want to write an angry letter to Doctor Wen to tell her <laughs> that she cannot. She has no control over Matt Contadetti. And she can, okay, she well, can you just see need the guys tweet flag. this podcast at her. Tweet at her later today. This Hello, is your Dr. letter. Dr. Yeah. Angry I mean, note to follow, Dr. Wen. Yeah, to, to just to thread this conversation with the last one, talk about misreading the room. Talk about over-interpreting what the, sentiment, the prevailing sentiment on Twitter is, or Facebook, or social media generally. 
Um, I don't, I've never encountered a poll that suggests that, that people, even in California, that people think that uh, masking once you're vaccinated is a good idea. I mean, there are some people who are very concerned about their environments and they talk incessantly about it. They will not shut up about how concerned they are about their lives and, and, and your life and everybody else. And the, the risk is, is, over, is too excessive. But from the perspective of the small business owners and the people who patronize those businesses, and when the masking regime was extended in April and May, even though the vaccina- vaccination rate was pretty you know, highly saturated in this community, there was a lot of frustration with it to the point that it led was one of the primary reasons why we have a recall election in California. There was a political backlash. And the notion here that there won't be any as a result of this excessive measure with people defending it in such disgustingly draconian terms as, as Dr. Wen, I can't imagine that there won't be even like Sotopoche sort of like, we don't want to give Republicans any ammunition here, but nevertheless, there will be some sort of political backlash associated with this. Um, I think this is disastrous for another reason, in a, in a way that no move yet has been so disastrous up to this point, especially if this is copied in other states moving forward. Um, saying at this point that you have to mask up, even if you're vaccinated, is saying there's no getting out of this ever. This is it. We needed the vaccine. We had the vaccine. We had the lockdowns. We lifted the lockdowns. Back lock- that's it. This is there is there is no light at the end of the tunnel. You're in the tunnel. We live in the tunnel for the foreseeable future. It's over. Um, that is a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, not not only for our psychologies, but for the growth of business, community, all the rest of it. Everything that the U.S. needs to 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 do at this moment um, is going to be hampered by 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 that kind of thinking. There would just be mass civil disobedience. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, we, we thought we got through the worst uh, of the social disruptions from COVID. You see the headlines about the opioid deaths spiking. We basically ruined the educations of uh, tens of millions of school-aged children. Uh, okay, well, now now it's coming down. We're vaccinated. Deaths deaths are, are not increasing. <laughs> and and, the, and the, deaths, the deaths are the people who did not get the vaccine. And these masking in, in mandates are are socially, you know, self reinforcing. There's no police force out there patrolling the streets, looking out to see By who's masking. Way, so who's going to be masking the vaccinated? Okay, the people who will be disobeying this are the people who need to be observing mitigation, mitigating measures. Right. Well, so Matt mentioned uh, taking out the Gazan flag. I mean, let let's let's. It's not civil disobedience to disobey an illegitimate emergency order, right? <laughs> this is not legislation, did not go through two yeah. houses of the California state legislature, was signed by the governor. It is a declaration by the L.A. County Health Department, which somehow finds itself in empowered in a way that it should no yeah. longer and be goes, empowered. It should be noted, goes against both CDC and Newsom. Right. Because it's just this county deciding this. I mean, it happens to be one of the largest counties in the country, if not the largest with the largest 10 million people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So but but the um, the talk about authoritarianism. I mean, it's just to me, it's just um, it's uh, gasp inducing that they would just mandate this or or suggest exactly. Exactly. What is the force of law? So I'm wondering. Oh, I haven't I I don't know whether there have been legal challenges uh, uh, to this sort of um policy because we we haven't ever been in this state where you have vaccinated versus unvaccinated and should that you know should the requirement apply to people who who did their 
due diligence and got vaccinated. Um, I, I don't know, but I would expect there, and I hope there are legal challenges to this. I mean, it's just there's a timing problem. There, there have been cases in various states right. and stuff challenging the constitutional legitimacy of emergency uh, regime orders. And, and of course, the whole thing about emergency measures is they are supposed to be temporary and they're supposed to be time limited. And, you know, even Andrew Cuomo, when he got in trouble because of his uh, sexual, supposed sexual peccadilloes or, or misbehaviors, sought desperately to change the subject by almost unilaterally or, or the, the, I mean, the, 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 the state legislature removed his emergency powers and he signed the bill. Like he, like he also knew he needed to, you know, this guy who was, you know, entire uh, political uh, life was, was revolutionized by him, you know, r- ruling by fiat in New York state had this moment of, you know, coming to Jesus where he, he said, okay, I, I don't really want to have this power anymore, so you can yell at me about it. And, I mean, I, Newsom, interestingly enough, is in an interesting position here because, as you say, the, this goes against California state stuff. He is facing a recall that he's going to win. He's not going to be recalled. But um, talk about it. Maybe this is a gimme for him. Like, why, why doesn't he go and say, hey, Barbara Ferrer – you know, you a person with a PhD in communications who somehow ended up as the public health official of, of uh, you know, of, of L.A. County. You're not a doctor. You're just a loudmouth, you know, woke feminist, uh, you know, consultant type who walks around talking about how to help, you know, about affirmative action and stuff like that and somehow gets yourself into this position. You have no right or authority to do what you're what you're doing here i mean i you know he's not going to say what i just said but i mean that would be the implicit understanding which is go back into your little cubby and you know go back into your office and close the door uh the big you know this is this you're playing way above your you know you're you're reaching way above your station here i mean but wouldn't that cut against his own political instincts because Wen's quote is probably pretty illustrative i think of uh a line of thought on the left, which frames this in terms of control more than in terms right. of public health. Control no, to eradicate the virus. And that's where they right. go wrong. They think that this virus will be eradicated. It will not. Even in Asia, where in the countries that we, at the outset of the pandemic, the Koreas, uh, the Japan, the Japans, where we thought, oh, they were doing a pretty good job. It's back. It's raging. The only way out for most people, is to get the vaccine. And as has been put eloquently on this podcast many a time in recent weeks, if you don't get the vaccine, then it's on you. It's not my problem. It should not be my problem. And I should not have to wear a mask. And who articulates the end goal there that you just said, Matt, that this <clears throat> the ultimate objective here is to render this just another coronavirus? No one. No one. Because we're governed by, <laughs> by liberals yeah. at the moment who are, who are just... They... Um, their whole perspective is somehow we're going to just vanquish coronavirus, COVID-19, like we vanquished measles, we vanquished polio. And that's just, I, I, I do not believe that is possible in contemporary American society or, or world society. But I mean, there are two ways to vanquish the coronavirus. I mean, there are there are ways to vanquish it in some fundamental sense. You get people vaccinated and then everybody else gets it. Right. <laughs> 
And so one way or another, it's going to take longer. You're either, yeah. You either, yeah, you either, you either get, you either don't get it or you get it. And at some point between now and next year, if the vaccination rate remains, you know, below 70%, almost everybody who isn't vaccinated and who is over the age of 18, because that's another important aspect here. Um, not everybody under the age of 18 is going to get the coronavirus. But of course, that's they also then play this game, which is they move the football, right? They they move or they move the goalposts where they say the danger isn't the delta variant, it's the gamma variant or the lambda variant. It's what it's what this will mutate into. The highly contagious delta variant, John. Right, but right, exactly. But I mean that that we're not at risk from the delta variant. All the data say if you're vaccinated, you're not at risk from it. If you get it, and if it should break through, you'll get an incredibly mild case. That isn't as bad as a, just a, an, an ordinary flu. If it breaks through, no one, 99.4% of the deaths from the corona, from, from the Delta variant, are among the unvaccinated, which is effectively like saying 100%. 0.6% in a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a giant, you know, latitudinal thing is, is to say zero. And so you're not going to die from it and you're not going to get ho- hospitalized from it. So then why do we have to do what they're going to do in L.A. County? Because of what might happen to the Delta variant as it exists. And then it mutates into something even more dangerous. And then that will destroy the, the, the virus. But are we actually going to make public policy based on a theory of, the, of, of mutation? That, By the way, we have no idea whether, as is the case, the Delta variant is both more contagious and less deadly than COVID-19, right? So it's a weird thing because it's a thousand, you get a thousand times more viral load in your body, but it doesn't kill you. So, so and it doesn't seem to kill other people or hardly at all. Well, I don't even think uh, our LA County uh, friend there who's impose this draconian measure is is even thinking of it in the same way that you are, which is the more sophisticated, the Atlantic, the Ed Yong piece. You know, this is why we have to worry about the Delta variant is because of the gamma or, you know, uh, uh, the later epsilon, epsilon yeah, the later uh, Greek alphabet. Um, the, the They're just being punitive. Is, is And this is how liberals, I think, are really just completely misreading how to talk to people, which is a big problem of theirs, as you may have noticed over the course of the last 60 years, they're saying, you're not getting vaccinated. We don't have enough people getting vaccinated. How are we going to get them vaccinated? By mandating that everyone wear the mask again. And that way there would be no excuse. Right. And you're going to just, you're going to have to get vaccinated at that point. Or the, the Biden comment about the door to door thing, which I think was kind of blown out of proportion, but it's the same way. It's the, the liberal mentality is, if someone's not doing what we want, all we have to do is like grab them by the shoulders and yell at them. <laughs> and then finally, then finally they'll listen to reason. That's not how people behave. It's not. How, and at some point, you're just going to have to say it's an individual decision. You should get the vaccine. If you don't get the vaccine, then you're going to have to shoulder the risk. And that idea of personal agency and personal risk is something that just blows the liberal mind they have a very hard idea but, of understanding okay. it but then let, let's go into this because th- this is this is the ultimate conundrum the punishment here is for the people who've been vaccinated the punishment is put your mask on you did what you were supposed to do you've done what you've done the right thing for yourself for your family and for your country 
put the mask back on, buddy, because the irresponsible people over here, it's like it's like some form of collective punishment. And the weird part about it is I thought these liberals think that all the Trump voters are, you know, yahoos who live in flyoveristan and, you know, are, you know, we need to like separate ourselves from them because they're so evil. So why aren't they effectively saying to themselves, let them all die? I mean, I know this is a weird way to put it because it sounds awful, but I mean, effectively, uh, they hate those people. So they're mandating that they put their own masks on because they want to pressure those people into getting the vaccine. Those are the only populations not getting vaccinated. That's I recently right. came across a headline this week that really struck me. It was something about uh, I think thirty to forty percent of the migrants apprehended at the border are refusing the vaccine. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, from, from from my border hawkish point of view, maybe that's the reason not to let them into the country. You know, it's like they're offered the vaccine before they're released and 30 to 40% are denying it. And, oh, okay, go ahead. So it's not just the, it's not just the Trump voter that the liberals might want to be rid of. It, it's other significant populations within their own coalition that, that are denying the vaccine. But I don't even think, I, I'm not even sure it's liberals wanting to punish Trump voters here. I think it's public health officials wanting to punish the country for not listening to them. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely that too. Okay. There's also, I mean, that's to, a to very good on, way to put to it. touch on what John was saying, though. There is sort of a strain, and not, not to get too philosophical here, but there is sort of a strain of, of thought on the left, which is a you know, progressive left, which is you know kind of congregationalist in so far as uh, collective um, suffering must be evenly and equally endured. And that sort of combats a, a malaise, you know, otherwise, you know, you have this, this disequilibrium in society, particularly when there's any suffering, if it's unevenly endured, then it, we're all, we're all contributing to, uh, you know, a, a social uh, malady so that, yeah, everybody needs to suffer because that's how you achieve salvation. I, you know, that's an interesting way to put it, but the other way of looking at it is uh, the sort of collective punishment method in basic training or something like that, right? Somebody does something and the whole point is to make the entire, you know, the entire platoon suffer so that the person who is responsible for the failure or something like that understands that everything that he does or she does uh, has an effect on everybody else. And there there needs to be a kind of internal self-discipline where you're going to get it from your fellow people uh, if you don't do the right thing, and it doesn't even matter if you do the right thing, even if you're going to get punished and all of that, but they don't have any sway over the those who are not getting vaccinated. I mean, that's the part of the problem here is like, it's not going to, there's no Trump voter in Mississippi who is going to get, who is going to get vaccinated because people are putting masks on in LA County. I mean, that's, and I, I take your point. It's like, this is what we can do to stop the virus. I'm Barbara Ferrer. I'm the LA Health County Health Commissioner. Everyone put their masks on, right? That's what we're going to do. But that is actually not going to increase the vaccination rate one iota, one bit. Because everybody who's not vaccinated has already gotten the message they're supposed to keep their masks on. They do or they don't. We don't know. We have no idea who the, who they are, whether or not they're they're vaccinated. We're protected from them if we're vaccinated. 
That's what we know. We're not going to get COVID well, from that. What's that great line? But the punishment will continue until morale improves. <laughs> yeah, that's the I mentality mean, right, at work right. here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe if we lived in, you know, if we lived in Athens in the fifth century BC, this system would work. But it, we live in a country of three hundred and thirty million people, and it's not a. It's not going to work, and b. It's also morally despicable but we can actually get to that after i talk to you about underwear because it's time to talk about underwear yes apollo tommy john's newest and most advanced men's underwear with that performance grade dry release fabric brand blend the latest comfort innovation from tommy john you can't get it anywhere else it's proven to keep you drier and up to seven degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear uh soft supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day available up to size 4xl with over 15 million pairs sold, men across America love Tommy John underwear because there's no more flopping, sticking, or chafing. And like all Tommy John underwear, Apollo comes with the best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free guarantee. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. It has fanatics. Uh, right now, get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. Go to TommyJohn.com slash commentary for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details so let's go move on to this major point which is aside from the gadsden flag uh you know uh, which of course you know existed at the very beginning of this republic people always walking around it's oh my god someone at the january 6th you know demonstrate had a gadsden flag it's like really gadsden flags been around since 1783 you idiot but um so that's a very deep part of the American psyche saying, don't tread on me. Like that is, that is the American, that is the American perspective toward government. One of the two American perspectives toward government, let's say boiled down to its essence. Right. But um, what's, what's, what's morally depraved here and, and, and despicable is uh, that uh, we, we should not be, we should not have to, we should not be told by our government how we are to behave when we're walking around on the street or in a store. Government has no right in this country to tell us such things. I mean, we shouldn't be naked. You know, there are sort of stuff like that maybe, or, you know, you can't. Maybe. But, <laughs> right, right. But, but an owner of a store can tell you. Although, of course, there are limits on what an owner of a store can tell you because an owner of a store can't throw you out because you are black or you know, you the, that that famous sign uh, that has now, you know, that basically was overturned by the Civil Rights Act of 19... We refuse the right to reserve service, to, refuse service to anyone is no longer constitutionally legitimate. But the owner of a store can say, I want you to have a mask on. Barbara Ferrer has no right to say, you, you know, I want you to have a mask on. Uh, nobody voted, for, you know, there's no legitimate public system in which we can say that people elected by i mean is employed you know empowered i guess by either the city council or by the mayor i mean i don't even know how the system works uh but they have she has no right and she's doing it anyway and where where is the where is the civil libertarian left is there a civil libertarian left anymore? There isn't, right? It's gone, right? The ACLU now wants books suppressed, you know, wants Abigail Schreier's book suppressed because it says that, you know, maybe it's not great for teenage girls to have disfiguring surgery and to take and to take hormones that will disrupt their body systems for the rest of their lives. 
uh, before they attain their majority. That's okay. You can suppress those books. Like, is when I was a kid, the left was civil libertarian, right? The right was actually not that civil libertarian. Much more, much more about order and stuff like that. Matt, this is like one of your key subjects of academic and policy yeah. focus. Oh, well, you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, the, the Supreme Court recently issued that ruling on um, anonymous donors. And of course, there, the state of California wanted to um, mandate disclosure uh, of, of all political donations to all political organizations. And one of the one of the groups that was fighting that um, uh, was the ACLU. And when I saw that, and actually the NAACP was also fighting it. Um, and, uh, and they won. The Supreme Court said that, uh, of course, donors can remain anonymous. Um, I said, "Oh, well, that's an old—that's an old version of the left. That's kind of the Nat Hentoff left that uh, that we grew up with, uh, civil libertarian individual rights. And you don't see that very often, especially in relation to the to the disease, um, where um, the uh, the mentality uh, of, of so many liberals uh, is um, uh, res- regulation is good, uh, restrictions are good." Um, uh, and you know, for whatever psychological reasons that we've gone into on the show, these need to be necessitated. Whereas the right now, um, but you know, the, the right is, is very much, um, taken on some of the aspects of, of kind of that new left of the 1960s, the holding demonstrations, uh, kind of, uh, you know, anti-establishmentarian, um, uh, um, the, the police are good, but not, not the Capitol police. They're bad. So there's, you know, very making distinctions such as this. Um, they've definitely swapped roles. Uh, are we, Abe, do you think that um, all of this is just the disfigurement of, of, of partisanship? I mean, I, I know you don't really, because of course you are the author of the seminal piece. Yes, this is a revolution about what happened Based pretty much to the left, uh, you know, as a result of George Floyd, all the all the trends that dovetailed and then exploded at the same moment uh, because of the George Floyd moment. But um, uh, I mean, the bizarrery here is is this wild reversal in you know, all we hear from the left is that the right has an authoritarian mindset, and that's why the right loves Trump. Authoritarian, it's Reichstag, and here's you know Mark Milley talking about the Reichstag. He just learned the word Reichstag, I think, He's, in October we, of 2020. We've learned so well, much about General yeah. Milley, by the way. <laughs> yes, For yes, something, yes. I don't know what happened, but in the last yeah. two weeks, I've learned so much about General Milley that I really yeah. don't care to yeah. know, and it's slightly yeah. disturbing. But I, Oh, by the way, can, I guess it's because all the reporters that he ta- spent the last six months talking to have released yeah. their books all at once. And so I know yeah. every aspect of his views on every subject. And yeah, I thought he, he was my breakfast? employee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, likes, he, he likes Frosted yeah. Flakes, but only on Tuesdays yeah. and Wednesdays, John. And yeah. on Thursday, he yeah. gets a venti uh, cappuccino yeah. at the Starbucks. Yeah, well, he's from Boston, and he worships the Constitution. That's what I read yesterday <laughs> good, good. in Susan Glasser's piece. I just want to call an audible what I was asking Abe about. Yeah, sorry. Because Susan Glasser <laughs> has this oh God, has this bizarre piece. Uh, uh, she is now releasing early. Some of the material that's in her book that she's written with her husband, Peter Baker, on, on Trump's last year that's supposed to come out. Because of all this stuff about Mark Milley, she is now releasing it. And it's startling news that Mark Milley, you know, was after the election, was trying to make sure there wouldn't be no, you know, there would be no revel. You know, Trump would, uh, wouldn't stage a coup, right? And then 
it dovetails into this, which is that uh, there's a conversation in early January in the Oval Office about whether or not the United States should strike Iran. And uh, whether or not, uh, you know, Iran has been doing things and there should be a thing. And Mark, and, and, and the, 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 the conversation that is had that she quotes in this kind of breathless, oh my God, can you believe this crazy craziness in the Trump administration? You know, Millie said, why, why are we even talking about this or something? And Pence said, because they're evil. And this is deemed to be, oh my God, can you believe how insane Mike Pence is to say that they're evil? And the net result was there was a meeting in the White House to talk about whether or not they should strike Iran. And everybody said, you know what? It's too late. We're leaving office in 16 days. Uh, you know, we don't know what the fallout's going to be. We have to leave this to Biden. And guess what, Noah? Biden struck Iran. <laughs> Biden hit Biden did something about the drone strike, the Iranian drone strikes in Iraq, which is, I think, in Iraq and Syria. They, Syria was the I first, think, first strike, right. yeah. But I think that's what they were talking about. And this whole thing is part of the Trump has gone insane. He's going to go to war with Iran before the, you know, before, to, so he can seize power. So. He doesn't go to war to Iran, with Iran. He doesn't seize power. And then Biden hits Iran. But that's okay because it's Biden. But Trump is crazy. Abe, I'm sorry. But I, I, I you know, I'm, I, my, mouth, my jaw was hanging well, over. Well, there's, there's another piece of news that, that broke yesterday that, that, that fits into this question about the left and right shifting on civil liberties and the framing of Donald Trump as the authoritarian. Um, the White House or the the. Biden administration said it's going to flag Facebook. It's going to flag uh, misinformation posts on on Facebook. Um, this is a crack. This had that come from the Trump administration, we it would be the number one story about controlling the media. About fascism is not is not on its way. It's here. I mean, the other interesting point about that is that that's, of course, about vaccination. Yeah. So Jen Psaki said they were going to inform Facebook when they found out that people were, you know, using publishing misinformation about vaccination on Facebook. Uh, so why, why, by the way, why can't, isn't Facebook capable of doing, like, it's a company worth eight trillion dollars they can hire ten thousand people to look and like kill bad information about vaccinations without the interference of the federal government which doesn't have that many employees who are doing who are you know shouldn't they be doing something else other than reading social media and tagging things um it just seemed like a, a bizarre policy thing to me if Mark Zuckerberg is worried that misinformation is being spread by Facebook about vaccination he can shut it down in five seconds just has to hire 500 people to do it. Look, Facebook is poison. You should get off of it. You should eliminate your account. If you haven't already, you're swimming at your own risk. And uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of wish that it, there's something about left-wing thought policing that doesn't strike me as particularly uh, bizarre because we've been living with left-wing thought policing for some time. The problem from my perspective is that there really isn't a counterbalance on the right anymore. They, they've convinced themselves that thought policing, speech policing on these platforms is sort of something that maybe we should be doing too. Uh, just, you know, the sort of thought policing and speech policing that we like. And there's a consensus now around the notion that you can't be exposed to particular thoughts because they're dangerous. 
or at least these platforms shouldn't necessarily exist in the way that they do to provide you access with these with to these particular thoughts. That's right. it, guys. It was, yeah, that's a faction on the right. Uh, there's also a faction on the right that's much more sort of um, really mimics kind of where the left was at in terms of free speech and anything goes. And I, just on this question of, of the civil liber- libertarians sort of switching sides, I, I do think we're at the beginning of something like a right wing 60s, 1960s here. And um, especially also if you take into consideration that I think no one realizes quite how many um, younger Americans are disgusted by being um, moralized at it, from the other side, from the left in the way that the right had sort of wagged their fingers at, uh, you know, kids back then. Um, so as, as, as exciting as that prospect may be, this sort of right-wing 60s, I think the danger is that um, we also risk some of the excesses. Um, and, and we, we, we lived through them on yes. January 6th. I think there's yeah. more, more to yeah. come. I think, and that, uh, yeah, that's both, yeah. Uh, it's a terrifying thought, but I think a, a brilliant insight. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and, and by the way, not, not just January 6th, but, you know, I mean, QAnon, uh, yep. a lot of that stuff. And of course, one of the reasons that you don't want this to happen uh, is that uh, in contra, one of the things that we learned in the 1960s and after is that the idea of a political movement in a free society run by the least informed, the most hysterically passionate, and the ones most driven by, you know, a desire to have sex uh, is not really the best way, <laughs> the best way to organize the politics of the United States uh, because... Hedonocracy. Uh, yeah, D- Dionysian, you know, Dionysian passion <laughs> is not how we, here. is not is not how a is not how a self governing society. But, but that is interesting. Is that to... last part has kind of been dropped from both sides. That, you know, Sex? Yeah, don't you yeah. think? I mean, in both BLM and kind of uh, MAGA world or yeah. Save America world, it's not like hey, let's all get together and um, you know hook what up. This Chapter word? six. Yeah. It's, Chapter it's, six. It's, it's all politics. Every every single energy is directed yeah. toward politics in a way that's slightly yeah. different from the '60s. I think. I mean, there's not even. I mean, I guess maybe on the right. on the left you have the cultural expressions of kind of woke. I mean, they're so bad, you know, uh, of the woke um, yeah. ethos. But that uh, it's just everything drives toward political change. Who's who's running the show? Um, and and how are we going to? But that's even worse. Yes, that's even yeah. worse because they're full of because they're, they're full of hormones, and they're not using them. They're full of they're full of <laughs> they're full of like you know pent up sexual energy, and they're playing yeah. into politics when they should be chasing each other, you know, around or you know like doing whatever they they can. It do. must be this maddening. Is- the progressive lives in a world in which every sexual appetite is is prescribed and even. Um, you know, lionized as some sort of a unique personality trait and a contribution to a more just society. And yet, just about every expression of sexual appetite is fraught with with social consequences and legal consequences to the point where you're pretty much not able to to really pursue in a bold and assertive fashion. Uh, Unless you're in a throuple. Unless you're in a throuple. Or one of those group homes that the New Yorker has an article every two weeks on. They discovered another group home in Brooklyn. And they're 18 people. And they're all married. But they don't call themselves married. But it's it's deeper, their relationship than married. They different couples at different times, different throuples. Yeah. Unless you're in that. 
Yeah. yeah. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Here's, here was my discovery last night. So, so I, I was watching this HGTV show, House Hunters, and this very nice couple from Long Island is looking at three houses and trying to decide which one to have. And I wanted to figure out where the houses were because, you know, they don't really – and I know Long Island. And I, they don't ever tell you where they are exactly. So it's a little maddening. Uh, if you know the area, you sort of want to know what it is. So I searched their names and House Hunters and HGTV, whatever. And so it comes out. I couldn't really find them, but it said, House Hunters features first thruple. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was a news story. Apparently, like, House Hunters, I, I hate to, you know, I hate to give Saurabh any more ammunition <laughs> for his belief that America needs to be burned up in a fire. But, you know, when, you know, that's very complex bedroom planning. Well, you need, a, I think, yeah. in the, for the thruple. I mean, are there two <laughs> yeah, master yeah. bedrooms? Yeah. Are they all in, it's, can they think fit of the California king? larger master bedroom, John. Okay, larger, but, yeah. but, but a California king, is that enough for three people? I don't know. I mean, it's give, give, you know, very, the, very, yeah. Crowded. That, that, pretty soon, their <laughs> podcast advertisers will be. You know, they'll be yeah. right. You'll they'll be writing you copy for the thruple bed. You know, it's like that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they sustainably they both use sustainable fabrics <laughs> and Extra they're roomy. big enough yeah. to fit yeah. the thruple, yeah. the bed of the thruple, the sheets that fit the thruple bed that have been done with fair trade right. because that is really a beautiful thing. Um. We are so long, but I got to talk to you about the Bonson Group. Uh, today, Friday, uh, you can get Dividend Cafe, uh, David Bonson's uh, weekly newsletter about uh, macroeconomic and market moves uh, from the Bonson Group, this $3 billion uh, by coastal management services firm, two internet publications. DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com. As I say, Dividend Cafe comes out on Fridays. DC Today comes out daily. And, and, and David uses his unparalleled analytical ability to look at uh, what is going on and help us understand where we should and where we should move our money and what, what, what we might do with our money if we uh, think that we can uh, make moves that are congruent with where things are going as uh, people know if they've heard me say this david is a is a skeptic about the long-term uh dangers of inflation and he has very interesting he has been releasing very interesting data this week about how just as everybody is now terrified of inflation uh all of the numbers that led to you know fears about um uh, inflationary spirals lumber various other things have crashed in the last month they they aren't like back to pre-pandemic levels but they but they are nowhere near the highs that they were a month ago and often in economic writing and economic thinking the people are analyzing effects after they've already been felt and as they're already recovering themselves this is data you could get if you subscribe that's where i saw it that's where you can learn it you can make your own draw your own conclusions from it um dctoday.com and go to dividendcafe.com to to subscribe and and provide yourself with the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. Okay, so we we, we, we got to 
Yes. Can we, I, you know, before we end, I, I, yes. I want to circle back to Cuba briefly because um, <clears throat> Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has uh, public, uh, made a statement that is so good that I just want to enter some of it into the record here. Uh, quote, the best role for the military, the Cuban military, is to realize that the time is up, that you can't keep doing the bidding of a rep- repressive dictatorship that is not governing with the consent of the governed. And so clearly... This is a dictatorship that is lost, not that they ever had it, but clearly they don't have the consent of the government now. And so I think the best thing would be for the militaries, particularly some of the young military folks, to understand that you can really be historic in this, that you can play an instrumental role in founding a free Cuba, refounding a country and a free republic. And that will be something that will help millions of people and that will somehow somehow be something that will cause you to live in the history books. Um, one thing that communist regimes fear the most is the truth. And if we're able to help Cubans communicate with each other, uh, communicate with the outside world, the truth is going to matter. And that will be decisive. Mr. President, now is the time to stand up and be counted. This is a time for choosing. This is a time to stand with the people who are seeking freedom from a brutal 62-year reign of communist repression. Um, God bless him. That's a fantastic statement. It's one also that Marco Rubio made um, to, the, to, a small, to a lesser extent on Twitter and was chastised by a functionary in the State Department for you know uh, inciting violence. Nobody wants violence. Um, this is this is what we should be hearing from the President of the United States. That the military uh, should take a leading role in um, ending this 62-year-long mistake. You know, if I uh, were planning a coup, I would want Ron DeSantis as part of my coup. If you were doing a coup, and if I were doing a coup. Uh, I, 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 I actually I'm with Trump. I don't think I would want Mark, Mark, Mark uh, Milley as as, uh, as part of my coup. I mean, I, I just think that's that's just uh, I, I really, you know, I'm not on Twitter anymore. But I'm I'm glad I'm not on Twitter because I probably would have spent the entire day yesterday naming people that I wouldn't want to be part of my coup, and people wouldn't have gotten the joke, and then I would have been canceled. But um, I hope everybody sat and thought long and hard. About uh, who who you would who you would have join you in your coup and who you wouldn't have, sort of like the two synagogues on the on the desert island. You know, the guy the rescuer shows up. There's a Jew sitting on the desert island, and 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 he's built two synagogues. And the and the the rescuer says, "Why did you build two synagogues?" And he said, "Well, this is the one I go to, and that's the one I wouldn't set foot in." <laughs> so. So that's my that's my coup planning. Matt Connetti, thank you so much for joining us. As always, read Matt's work at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. We do not talk enough about the articles in the issue and the articles on the website, and we're going to start doing more of that uh, beginning next week because I feel like we are remiss in trying to give you uh, some of the benefits of our offerings. You know, the editor's podcast, the National Review, they do a fantastic thing at the end of every podcast. They publish a lot more stuff than we do, uh, but, you know, where they 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 pitch pieces on National Review that they think are the best pieces of the last couple of days. We should really be doing doing more of that. But, uh, Matt, just search. You, by the way, you can go to Google simply. Search Matthew Continetti Commentary Magazine and his uh that's believe it or not the easiest way to search commentary we do have a search engine and it's pretty good but that's actually my secret is that's how i do it i just go to google um 
until Google cancels us, which probably will happen, you know, tomorrow since after I said something nice episode, about Abigail yeah, Schreier. Yeah, after this yeah, couple yeah. discussion, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The hook. yeah. No, I think that probably <laughs> lifts us in the rankings. I think that's what they want on that front page is, you know, <laughs> yeah, sorry, search commentary and thruple and you're going to get a lot of good stuff. Anyway, have a great weekend for Abe. Christine, Gabe Noah and the absent Christine Rosen who will be back on Monday. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.